So I am so excited. Welcome to Disruption Now. To all the fans out there listening, we're excited to, to bring you Robert Greene, one of my favorite authors of all time, actually my favorite author of all time. He is the author of uh, The 48 Laws of Power, probably what he's best known for, but he's also the author of The 50th Law. He's the author of The 33 Strategies of War. He's the author of The Art of Seduction. He's the author of Mastery. And now his new book, The Laws of Human Nature. It's a great book. It'll transform your life. And he's going to talk about how transformative it is, and I'm so excited. But I want to, I want to read a line from this book. And he starts off the book with these words. If you come across any special trait of meanness or stupidity, be careful to not let it annoy you or frustrate you, but you ought to just make sure you, you, you put it in your knowledge of human character that this is who humans are. So he teaches that and he teaches you the laws of human nature. And I think he teaches the most important thing we can learn, that we have to be self-aware. And self-awareness means understanding that you might think others are irrational, you might think others are dumb, you might think others are unreasonable, but guess what, you're probably that way too. And the first step to rationality, the first step to actually making good decisions is actually understanding all the bad decisions and all the bad character natures that you may have yourself. That's what really sticks out to me with all his books. And then you can begin to observe all of the bad characteristics in others once you learn that you actually have these characteristics yourself. It's mind blowing. It will transform how you think about things. It'll transform how you think about power. It will make you understand how things actually occur. So you don't have to be, you don't have to be, you don't have to be trapped or surprised by human nature when it catches you, because it will. Somebody's going to frustrate you. Some leader's going to lie to you. Someone's going to try to be jealous. Someone's going to do something that upsets you. And instead of actually reacting to these things in an emotional way, you can learn how to respond, how to get better. And that's what Robert Greene can teach you. And it's an honor to have him on the show. Robert Greene. Hi there. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so, look, we're, we're, we're honored to have you on this show. I got to tell you, I know everyone on this show, my, you know, myself included, uh, see you as a, a living mentor, kind of like you talk about in, in Mastery. And, um, you know, your books, 48 Laws of Power, was the first book I was introduced to. And once I read that book, I said, I have to read everything this person has ever written in his life. So I, <laughs> I, went, I went back and oh, I did that. It inspired me. So I've, I've actually read more of your books than, in, than any other author. And some people, when I recommend your book, and I know you've talked about this before, I recommend your books and they're like, well, and they look at me strange. And Toonday, Toonday's had the same experience. Like, they look at me like, are you some type of evil, crazy person? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, No. Just like you say, look, I look at this as, uh, as a self-help book in two ways. One, I want to be aware of all the crazy people that are out there. And two, yeah. I want to be aware of my own craziness, right? Right. And, and I think your book has done that better for me than anyone else. So I don't know if that was your intent or purpose on, 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 on why you wrote these books, but I can tell you uh, that's what I get out of your books. And particularly, I can think of a situation where your book really helped save, I would think, my almost career in a way. And, I, and I'll tell it that, you know, when you, when, you, when you talk about, you talk about this in both the 48 laws of power and the laws of human nature to watch out for these kind of like moral superiority people, these folks right. that, uh, you know, that, that, that just focus on wanting to be to how great they are. And, and that's their focus. And it reminded me of someone, I won't say the person's name, but it was, a, I, I chaired a university and there was a really high up person there so I'll probably give it away anyway, but so so be it. <laughs> <laughs> and and this person was so good at making himself look good 
and he never wanted to talk about his pay, and he actually advertised that he would never they, they didn't get a raise. Meanwhile, his whole staff was falling apart, and he would make everyone else look bad. He was a master passive aggressive, and he, and he got off and he got off being like a moral superiority person and using that as power. And I, when I read that in your books, I said, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's going on. And it actually saved me in dealing with them because it used to drive me crazy, and I could, no one could figure it out. So I want to tell you thank you. And thank you oh, for all welcome. that you've done. Because I get a lot of I get a lot of people who say, you know, why did you write that book? It's so evil. You're helping the the Donald Trumps of this world, you know, become even better at what they do. And I try and tell them stories like you just told me. But you know, it doesn't. I, they want to believe what they want to believe. They want to believe that I'm some evil Machiavellian character. But really, it's for people who suffer at the hands of these shark passive aggressive types so that you can be more aware of, of, of what's really going on because they're very tricky people. Yeah. No, I agree. Two decks. I don't know if I shared this with you, Robert, but I shared it with, with the guys. I've also had people cause I used to be a lot more naive. So I, I, I'd show myself a little bit more on the surface. So when, when I would meet people and they would say they had read the book, like 48 laws at the time, um, I would get excited and, and hey, that's awesome. I read that book too. I love it. Da, da, da. And then it would come back to me through the grapevine. And, you know, so-and-so doesn't think you're, they can trust you because you read that book. I heard that several times. And I, thought, and I thought to myself, well, that speaks more about them than it does about me because they read the book too. <laughs> that, tells me, that tells me about them, you know, like how they look at it, that someone would use this to purposely be more Machiavellian or more sinister right. versus the way we look at it. So it, it kind of helped me realize that, okay, if I meet someone that has an issue that I read that book, that's also something to watch out for. Oh, that's very true. That's very so, true. Yeah. Cause it's, it shows how they would themselves use that information and that, you know, so it's, uh, it's interesting. I find it reveals a lot about people that how they react to the book whether they get all defensive and insecure, or whether they can be kind of an adult about it and say, yeah, some of the book's a little exaggerated. I wouldn't go out and crush my enemy totally. I understand there's a bit of irony involved. It kind of separates people who have sort of an adult viewpoint from people who are kind of, I find kind of childish about the You also got, you know, uh, Robert, you made a point. This is a good transition to a question that I know Tunde wants to ask. It's because people have a hard time knowing that they're irrational, as you talk about in the book, that people like to believe that they're the most rational people ever, and most of those people are actually very irrational. And I know, Tunde, you, you deal a lot with this in the markets. You want to talk to him a little bit about that? Yeah, the, um, um, the uh, what do you call it, um, kind of your, because I was thinking about the different chapters you have in the various books. So, you know, beware the snares of groupthink. Um, yeah. I think in the, in the latest book, it's the, um, the, um, the crowd think, the um, chapter six, the law of short-sightedness with John Locke and the South Sea Company. So this, yeah. I, this kind of the, the group think that gets euphoric and we see it because I'm, I'm in the capital markets and, and own a wealth management firm. So I kind of understand that from crowd think, but we see it like, it's funny. We send an email out to our clients the day of the Uber IPO. It's kind of the most recent thing I can think of as, as one of these crowd moments. And right. 
got to be careful with compliance listening in. I'm not trying to um, talk about my business directly and <laughs> solicit anything, but um, and, and I'm making stock recommendations here. But um, what we did was we sent an email to clients saying, because I got a few phone calls and all that, and I was just, I just put it out there. We're not recommending an investment in Uber right now on the day of the IPO. And I kind of went through my reasonings. You know, it, it appears with the, with the volume and how we're seeing it trade that, you know, the early entrants are taking their profits. Um, we like investing in companies that have a track record of actually making money that, you know, have a cash flow statement that's positive and that pay dividends. So it was like, I just wanted to put that out there to everybody because everyone's getting caught up in the hype of watching the news and because they drive in Ubers and they think, oh, Uber's just going to do great. But my experience had told me, you know, the crowd thinks one way, let's, let's try and actually look at facts and be rational. And the facts told me this, this probably isn't the time to look at something like this. So I think, yeah, the, the markets are a great example of kind of the current, um, the current world's environment of the crowd and group think and, and where those risks lie. And I think Bitcoin, to not get into all that, but that could be another yeah. example, more of an unregulated example, you know? Definitely. Well, these things keep recurring throughout history, these bubbles, the South Sea bubble, the railroad bubble in the 19th century, the 1920s, the tech boom and burst in 2000, then the real, they, they occur in these continual cycles. And why? Why are people that stupid? You think that people who are, who are, in, who are in investing and in finance would be extremely rational and would know the history of bubbles and would know that every time there is a bubble, people come up with that famous quote, well, this time it's different. <laughs> you know, with, with, you know, derivatives and all the stuff that was going on in two this is a different kind of finance. We're in a new tech environment. We've created a new tool. It's not like it ever was in the past, you know. Bitcoins, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's not. It's the same thing. It's human stupidity that's generating these bubbles, not anything else. And you'd think that people who had so much on the line and meaning their livelihood and their money would at least understand the continual cycle of boom of, of these of these bubbles. You know, we're going through one right now. Supposedly, a new kind of debt bubble. A lot of co corporations and countries taking on way too much debt. So we're probably just returning to the same cycle. The only thing that's happening now is these bubbles are occurring more and more frequently. And, and you know, we, speaking to that point, and I want to get to Carlton next, but I want to have a follow-up with that. You, in your book, In the Laws of Human Nature, you, you, you talk about a bubble, the South, sea, the South Sea stock within England, which was kind of a debt bubble too, in a way. Um, and what was interesting to me that was kind of, kind of scary was that Isaac Newton, of all people, the person who's the, who created mathematics, couldn't see the logic... <laughs> <laughs> couldn't see that this wasn't logical, this wasn't rational. He saw it a little bit, but he still find himself getting caught up. This is my question. If somebody like Isaac Newton could get caught up in this, how in the world are we protected? What, what are we supposed to do? How are we, we going to not get caught up in the madness? Um, a lot of people who are that pride themselves on being so rational, like an Isaac Newton, like a scientist, actually have a huge blind spot. They often are the first types that will fall for a con game or for some scheme like that, because they don't believe that they're at all vulnerable to ever being deceived or tricked. You know, I just gave a talk yesterday at Google 
as Tunde knows. And I opened up with the story of the South Sea bubble and Isaac Newton. So as a lesson to these extremely smart, kind of brilliant tech people at Google, this is what's happening to you. You have this true huge blind spot because you think you're in science, you're in technology. It would never happen to me. Well, the whole point is to have some humility and have some understanding of history that we are all vulnerable. We are all susceptible to these kind of cons or these kind of these kind of group things that occur. Even me who wrote the book, I'm susceptible to it. I know that I'm human. I know I have this weakness. That small degree of humility and self-awareness is often enough to protect you so that before you step in and completely invest in Bitcoin, you go, well, is this really, is this really the rational part of me that's getting involved here? No, I know about the South Sea bubble. This is probably another South Sea bubble. That kind of awareness can actually prevent, keep you from falling into these traps. No, that, that, that's great. Carlton, I know you want to have a question. Yeah, thank you. Now, just wait, waiting my turn. Uh, before asking my question, um, and thank you for having me, I kind of wanted to just disagree a little bit with what Tunde said before and get your take on that before asking the question, because I tend to actually hoard the books and information and only share them with a very few people. So, um, it, which I actually kind of feel like is a strategy of the book in a way. Uh, <laughs> and personally, I am a little afraid of someone when I walk in and, and see this book, because I think it is a very powerful book and I think it can go into the hands of good and it can go into the hands of bad. So I don't, I don't know if that makes me one of those people to watch out for, but uh, <laughs> I do I do only share this book with very few people uh, or, or the information because uh, it's a great tool. And I think if you're, if, if you're using my second book, The Art of Seduction, you definitely want to put a different cover on it or at least disguise that. <laughs> for sure. Well, um, my question really had to do with, with a, a couple of, of, of points that you had. Uh, especially dealing with with jealousy, um, I tend to take a lot of your points very literal and, and apply them um, that way. And so I've created compelling spectacles. Uh, I court a lot of attention in my business, um, and I never appear to be too perfect. But while doing that, I seem to have uh, attracted a lot of negative attention uh, that I never foresaw coming, and has almost uh, has led to times of, of great stress in the business. I'm in, a, I'm in a medical industry, so it's brought on a lot of jealousy, envy, uh, and a lot of other issues um, from following these practices. So question is kind of, uh, what are your thoughts on that, on how to mitigate those risks, those 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 toxic individuals who, who can bring that type of um, stress to your, to your door um, when you are acting in, in, in this capacity? Well, can you give me any, just give me a, a one anecdote of somebody and their envy and how it caused stress with you? I'm just sort of curious. I got a perfect story uh, real quick. I mean, we do a great deal of marketing, a lot of creative marketing, a lot of publicity and, and, and public displays of, uh, of, of what we do. And, and, and we're very creative and good at it. But while doing so, people who, who typically can't compete on that level have, uh, for instance, called health inspectors, federal regulators, uh, and, and, and people of that nature into our business with false claims, uh, almost to the point now where we're on a first name basis with them and they just kind of like toss their hands up. They don't care anymore. But initially, it, it, 
it just caused a great problem. And, and, and when someone who doesn't have understanding it, that it's coming from jealousy or envy takes a little seriously, it can, it can be quite expensive and very stressful to the, to the business. Well, I think the, the you know, the, there's a film director named Ingrid Bergman who once said that envy is the, is a tax that you pay for success. So whenever you're successful, they just think of it as a tax that you're paying on top of the other taxes that you're paying, the people you're going to suffer from envy. It just goes with the, with any kind of successful venture, you know. So I have a lot of strategies in those books for how you can deflect envy. How, as you say, you don't appear to be too perfect. You can be a little bit more humble. You don't crow about your success. You talk about um, all the factors that led to your success. Like it wasn't just me. I've been lucky. I had, you know, a good mentor, my parents. So you sort of deflect and don't make everything look like you're this perfect individual. But even all of that, you can put, apply all those strategies. There are still going to be people who feel envy, particularly in the business world, particularly with rivals. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no strategy that I can possibly invent that will prevent people from feeling envy because it's so embedded in human nature. The only thing you can prevent in these instances is your reaction to it. First of all, don't be surprised. Don't get emotional. Don't get thinking like this is personal. No, it's just this natural human tendency for people to be envious of those who've had more success. They're always comparing themselves to others. They're comparing themselves to me and I've done better. So I'm not going to get embroiled. I'm not going to see that it's something I'm going to recognize envy for what it is. I'm going to have some distance from it and I'm going to do what I can to like not get embroiled in some kind of drama that a lot of envious people want to get us into. So if you can keep a little emotional distance, that's the best thing I can recommend. But, you know, a lot of people who attract envy, they have a certain personality type where they are almost too self-promoting. They almost don't know how to disguise how great they are or how naturally gifted they are or how popular they are. So sometimes it's the, the, per, the person's fault for not knowing how to kind of tone down their colors a little bit and learn how to, if you show that you're interested in other people and you have some self-deprecating humor, for instance, you can go a long way. And I talked in this recent book about Robert Rubin who was the head of Goldman Sachs and then went on to be working the Obama administration. And from what I could read, this guy was an absolute genius at deflecting envy. And who would be more uh, of a magnet of envy than this man who at a very early age rose to the top of Goldman Sachs? But he was so gifted socially, he always gave credit for his brilliant ideas to other people. He always acknowledged that he was very lucky he showed interest when there was a meeting. He would be interested in the ideas of the lowest person at that meeting. He just knew that envy in an environment like Goldman Sachs was, was radioactive. And he was just very aware of it and very careful to deflect it. So I hope I'm answering your question in some way. But that's how I would approach it. Can I play the other side of that? Because I think what also Carlton might be getting to is beyond... Preventing envy, which is not possible, as you said, is human nature. What about avoiding people and bringing them in too close? 
So, you know, we, you, you, you talked about uh, the author of uh, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, and that she, she had a, somebody she brought around her that basically kind of ruined her life. Right. And she, and, and she saw signs but didn't pay attention to those signs. Can you talk a little bit about that so people can learn? I think that's the most important to, to guard against, right, those type of toxic, envious people that you bring in close because those are the ones that do the most damage. Um, it's a very good point. Um, a lot of things, you know, I make the point in the book that toxic people and obviously envious types are toxic or narcissists or passive aggressive. They don't go around with a neon sign saying, I'm dangerous, watch out. They're very tricky. They I wish they did. Huh? I wish they did. It'd be easy. I wish we all wish they did. <laughs> but they've learned since childhood to actually present a much different front to the world so they can have friends, so they can get ahead in life. Because if they went around revealing how they're envious or passive aggressive, no one would come near them. So they're very, very tricky. And so the point is to be able to recognize these types in advance and not get ensnared in them. Now, there's a fine line between being aware and being paranoid. I'm never in favor of being paranoid. Most people are great. 95% of people are not toxic enviers. And you don't have to go around worrying about every single thing that people are saying and doing. It'll drive you crazy. <laughs> it would. You just have to be aware of that 5% of people out there who can be dangerous so that your antennae go up, start flickering. When you notice signs that could reveal toxic envy. And a very classic sign, probably the number one sign, is someone who tries to befriend you so quickly without, you know, without the usual warm-up that a friendship re requires, that there's something going on that's strange because it's not natural for people to open themselves up so quickly to a stranger and want to befriend you. And so that's a sign that something strange is probably going on. Because when you meet somebody for the first time, it's natural for humans, this is definitely a part of human nature, to be a little bit wary of strangers. Sure. I don't know you. You could be somebody who could be, you could have real credible skeletons in your closet. I got to be a little, you know, wary. For someone to not have that distance is a sign of something strange going on. Now, they could be just a really friendly person. Fine. And you're just, your antennae went up and you're watching them. And maybe there's nothing, not a problem. But oftentimes, they're trying to befriend you so that they can, they don't realize it themselves, but they want to sabotage you. They, they want to get closer to you so they can gather information so they can steal your spouse from you, so they can do talk dirt behind your back after they've gathered information, so they can hurt your company or do something from the inside, and you're letting them into your life. And that's the perfect disguise for a toxic envier. Robert, you said something that I think is key for me, at least what I took away from the latest book, that they may not be aware of it themselves. And I think that's why it's, it was so influential or, or you know, just eye-opening to read the, the, the childhood parts of the stories that you told. I mean, I was amazed at with Rockefeller, how going right. back to his childhood is what led him to want to have the lack of control as a young child. He found the ability to control things through ledgers and accounting, which right. led him into numbers, which led him being the richest guy in human history until, I guess, Bezos. So. The, um, the, 
it's interesting because I think when we, the way like we talked about it earlier about, you know, Carlton and I might approach how we see others that have looked at your work a certain way. But the reality is both of us need to realize that most of the things that we may take as negative coming at us from other people usually aren't even done consciously by those people. And I think that's why what I got from when I was going through my stuff originally reading Four Day Laws years ago was the need to distance myself emotionally from that into, you know, whatever was going on in that moment. And I think by, by having that knowledge, like you're saying, by being aware of these things about what makes humans tick, you can, you can take yourself out of the middle and say, you know what, this isn't that personal. This person's just like this. Whether it was me or someone else standing here in front of them, they'd probably act the same way. Yeah, uh, very, very true. Um, the thing about um, envy and about a lot of these other qualities is that we don't want to admit to ourselves that we have this emotion. And envy is the number one thing like that. Nobody goes around saying, I'm, I'm, en I'm an envious type of person because it's an ugly emotion. It says that I feel inferior to someone else. And we humans don't like to feel inferior to someone else and to admit that we feel inferior and to admit that it bothers us. So we tell ourselves a story. The story that we tell ourselves is that person that we envy is actually a mean, evil, not a person that doesn't deserve their success. Therefore, I'm justified to do something ugly against them. That's the story an envier tells themselves. You talked about Rockefeller. People don't, who are extremely aggressive don't necessarily go around saying, I'm an aggressive person. I love pushing people around, although there are some like that. <laughs> yeah, there are. I'm not naming names of presidents or anything like <laughs> that. But Rock, Rockefeller had what's, what I call the aggressor's narrative. He tells a story to himself that he's doing this for the good of mankind, that he's creating this monopoly, that he's going to bring the cheapest price of oil to the American public. It's all justified. The business is, is chaotic. I'm going to bring order. Therefore, anything I do is justified. The social justice warrior. I talk a book about, about the shadow side of the human personality and how we're all kind of disguising these sort of darker impulses. Well, a great disguise for getting out your shadow is the social justice warrior. You believe so strongly in this cause that it justifies being mean and nasty and manipulative to people uh, on the internet, on social media, or whatever, because it's all for this great cause that I'm supporting, right? So people don't tell themselves that they're being talked. They don't tell themselves they're being envious or aggressive or manipulative. They have another story. And the thing that I've always said since the beginning of my books, since the 48 Laws, that the best liars, the best con artists, the best deceivers are the ones who actually sincerely believe what they're selling. If they believe it, it's hard for us not to think that it's true. So there's an element of kind of convincing yourself of these stories that I'm just telling you. Uh, that's actually a good transition. I want to talk about that. When you think about how human nature right now, it, it's so hard to control. And you talk in your book about appearance bias a lot. And and, and what happens there. And particularly, when you think about the age of social media, you know, social media, as you said, I think really hits our tribal instincts more than 
anything else really have a, we have a perfect medium for it. Michael Eric Dyson said it this way, you know, uh, social media uh, amplifies pre-existing conditions of human nature, the jealousy, <laughs> the envy, the grandiosity, you can go through it. So my question in this age of social media, how in the world do we combat this, not only from an individual basis, from a, but from a more societal basis? How can we get to a place where we can use social media for a good purpose? Well, I don't know. If I had that answer, I'd be, I'd be a billionaire right now. I, you know, I mean, that would be, you know, I don't, I don't believe in kind of like panaceas or in promoting ideas that aren't realistic or practical. Um, the, the darker, inferior parts of human nature, the animal parts of human nature, eventually rise to the top. And so in social media, the trolls, the people who are, who are experiencing all these negative emotions, the envy, the resentment at other people's success, on and on and on, they are naturally going to take over. It's like a garden. If you water it enough, the weeds will start sprouting up. And there's just more and more and more of them. The more you water, the more weeds. So it's inevitable that in an environment like that, the criminal types, the people who have their shadow side, who are, who are trolls or whatever, they're going to necessarily take it over. Because most people who are aggressive have more energy and have more skin in the game for pushing their agendas. Most of us who are mild-mannered, who don't really like being vicious or manipulative, when we get in a situation like that, we back off, we go away. And so they naturally are, are more aggressive, and they naturally tend to take over an environment like that. And, you know, what happened with social media was, if we can all remember back in the day, 12, 15 years ago when it was starting out, it was much different. Yeah, it was. Right? That's why it when was, I got to college, I remember. It, it seemed exciting. Like, here was a way to connect people together. And I remember there were all kinds of um, things built into, like, Amazon and Facebook that were actually great, where I could, like, literally get to know people in Los Angeles in my area that had a very particular taste like my taste, and I could make friends this way. It seemed exciting. And then what happened was Facebook and, and Zuckerberg they had to figure out a way to make money. Uh, they had to make, you know, they had to monetize this incredibly powerful tool. And so in trying to monetize it, they had to get rid of all of these kind of great social connecting functions and they had to turn it into a money-making business. And when they turned it into this money-making business where it was all about kind of gathering your private information and selling it, and they changed the whole, the whole nature of the beast. So a lot of that comes from the fact that these things that could be great social tools end up becoming a tool for making, for monopoly, for creating a monopoly, for creating, you know, you have shareholders, you've gone public, you have to show Facebook for years didn't make a profit. So now they had to show a profit and they felt tremendous pressure to sort of initiate all of these things and get rid of those kind of nice functions that it used to have. So it's almost the nature a little bit of, of a business like that, that it's going to morph into it. So my question that I always wonder is, how could somebody have designed a social media site like Facebook where it didn't have to make millions and billions of dollars and show a huge quarterly profit in order to keep running? 
but that could have some of the nice connecting aspects that social media used to have and where it wasn't this sort of garden full of trolls and full of all the negative people. I don't know how you would design it because human nature keeps intervening. If you have an answer, please share it because I don't really know. I don't know. I don't have an answer, but I do have an observation. It's that, so I, I had a friend I grew up with and we just caught up literally a few days ago and we, we are, we couldn't be more opposites in terms of our political views at this point. And he's actually gone way, way off in terms of his perspective from where I used to know him. Um, and so he became this way and I, I kind of let him know because he, he's getting a lot of information from social media. I didn't attack his point of view, but I kind of walked through how, how he had the belief and he came to realize that he is being, the information he has is being regurgitated to him because it's what he, Facebook, right. social media, his groups, what, they see his friends and they say, this is what you want to see. So we're going to give you the information over and over and over and over again. And it's confirming that. So I think we're going to have to try to create some other type of system that allows us to engage different points of view. I mean, that's really part of why we had this podcast. I mean, we've had people on that have different points of view and, and we got to be willing to have the debate. I don't know if I have the answer, but that's my, that's my hope that we can use this platform to actually get people to come outside of their perspectives and let's actually have debates and let's talk about each other. Uh, let's talk to each other, not talk about each other, I should say, and have the debates. And, and hopefully there's a platform for that. I'm hopeful, but I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm rather nervous to see what, what's happening right now, not only in our country, but really all across the world. Yeah, we're seeing a very heated environment where people are becoming more and more emotional, more tribal. But the thing is, if you want to read history, and I've talked about it in the book, these things go in cycles. So if we do want to feel um, a degree of hope, I think that at some point people are going to get a little tired of how much time they spend on social media and how it's and realize that it's programming, programming them. And they're going to revolt against this. Probably a younger generation coming up. I don't really know. I don't have children myself. But that's one thing that does make me hopeful, that eventually people are going to realize that we can't live like this. We're going to destroy the planet. We're going to destroy each other. They're sick of all the negative emotions. They're sick of how it appeals to the lowest part of our nature. And they want to create something else because it has to come from the bottom up. It can't be Robert Greene or the president of the United States preaching and telling people, this is what we need to do. We need to be polite. We need to... It has to come from the bottom up. People have to change their consciousness and want something different. I agree. I have, I have uh, James, one of our other co-hosts, James Keys. Wow, uh, another person. We got another person. Yes, and wow. yes, and uh, and he, he has a, he has a quick question. It's the last. It's the last new person. I promise, James. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, there's about six guys also waiting to jump in. Also, <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, yeah, good evening, uh, Mr. Green. I, yeah, I said I'm James Keys. I'm an intellectual property attorney down in Miami. Oh, nice. I'm down not too far from uh, Tunde. Um, in your book, uh, The Laws of Human Nature, one, of the, one area that really spoke to me was um, chapter eight about, you know, change your circumstances by changing your attitude. Right. Um, yeah, growing up, you know, my parents always, you know, taught me, you know, your, your attitude determines your altitude, you know, and like that's it, your attitude is something you, are in con you, you can control and is going to dictate, you know, so much about your, 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 your life, your day to day and your, your long term. Um, right. And so, you know, one of the things you talk about, about mitigating against highly dangerous forms of negativity is keeping your mind occupied, you know, and not stewing on problems. 
one of the things that occurred to me though, in, in reading that is that this type of like structural and ritual, like rituals or routines kind of seem to be built into to certain parts of like organized religion and the military. And like, those are on the group level where, you know, the, there's things that if you look now and say, well, why are they doing these things, these menial things or these things that just these rituals and, and things like that. But you can kind of see how it, it, it keeps people's minds occupied and, and allows them to move in a group. But how about on the secular level, on an individual level? You know, it, it seems there's so, it, 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 do you speak to each person and try to teach this lesson? Now, you know, as an author, that's maybe something you can do. But from, from a large scale standpoint, it seems so vast to try to impart this type of the, the mindset on people that they really are creating their own hell, you know, a lot of times with their attitude. Like, how do you see that as something that can be pushed out broad, more broadly? Um, it's a very good, very good question. Um, you know, the thing I talked to about to individuals uh, about that chapter is, you know, you're creating your own misery. You're making yourself miserable with your own thoughts and your own attitude towards life. And what if I could give you a pill that would suddenly make you not miserable, that would make you happy, that would make you excited, that would make you interested in life, that would get you out of your own little inner hell of thoughts, etc. You would take that pill pretty quickly, right? You would even pay me ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to have that. Well, I can give you this pill. It's your attitude. It's not going to cost you any money, but it's going to take some effort. But you just have to be aware that the way you look at the world determines what happens to you. And your attitude creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you approach people and you feel kind of hostile and slightly negative and insecure about them, like you think that, they're gonna, that they don't like you, they pick up that vibe from you and that they get defensive in return. And as you pick up their defensiveness, you get even more paranoid and even more suspicious and it feeds yourself. So you're creating the circumstances of your own life through your attitude. People pick up when they approach you, whether you're friendly, hostile, open or closed. So you're emitting this attitude and it's creating a response and you're not aware of this. It happens a lot in marriages where people are constantly bickering. And they always think it's the other person, it's the wife. She's the one that's always creating trouble. I'm just this nice guy. No, it's a dynamic. You're, she's probably picking up little vibes from you that are irritating, that originate from you. So how you approach people, how you look at them, is how they will treat you in response. That one little fact can revolutionize your life because now... You can walk into it. I tell people, if there's some boss who's tormenting you, who's awful, who's what we call a psychotic boss. Not that one. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> you can't seem to say or do anything right. I mean, probably that's maybe too extreme an example, but if you go in to the next time you meet with him or her, you tell yourself in your brain over and over again, I, I actually like this person. I understand them. They come from a very difficult, they were probably beaten as a child. They had a hard childhood. Their facade of being mean and tough is just a facade. You know, maybe there's something else there. Maybe I actually like them. Just try that as an experiment. I know it's difficult with some people, but try it. You'll see oftentimes that just by feeling that and thinking that, you alter how they respond to you. 
and you unfreeze the situation. I don't want to be Pollyannish here because it won't always work, but you have tremendous power by what you project onto other people, by your own attitude, by your own feelings. When it comes to a group, if you're a leader, um, you definitely can alter the attitude of the group. I talk a chapter in there on authority, and I talk in a lot of my books about what proper leadership is, and it all comes from the top. So if you're a leader who respects your employees, who thinks of them as each one has something to contribute that has potentially creative um, possibilities, things to contribute. And yes, I have to be a little wary of some of them. I can't be totally, you know, in love with all of my employees, but generally I respect them. The employees feel that. They feel it coming from, they can feel disrespect. They can feel the fact that you feel so superior to them that you're not even interested in their lives. They understand that you're sitting in your office and not working half as hard as you're asking other people to work. And your attitude is infecting them and creating a dysfunctional group environment. And it all comes from the top. They sense your attitude. If your attitude is respectful and empathetic and you treat people relatively equally, you don't play favorites, that will change the esprit de corps and it will elevate the group attitude and the group mood. So that would be my answer to your question. No, that's that's great. I, I'll tell you, and I, um, I I work on patents. So if you do come up with that pill <laughs> that changes everybody's mind, then you know, make sure you give me a call. I'll I'll make us all rich. Well, no. <laughs> chapter eight in my new book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know what? If if you gave people some pill and chapter eight. I bet, you, I bet you it would work even better because they say, oh, yeah, the pills really work. You give them a water pill. They don't. It's working. It's working. It's working. Just because yeah, that's how strong the mind is. What if, I, what if I created an app that would change your attitude? Would that work as well? Hey, let, let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had, th- speaking about this part, this chapter of the book, I believe, Robert, it's the part, it's the chapter where. You had the leader. I can't remember the guy's name, but it was when uh, everybody was out to sea and they were everybody was going to die. Almost everybody would have died, except absent this guy's leadership. And I think that's such a, and I, and I want people to get this book because it that actually helped me understand the perspective of leadership. My father always told me about because he's a leader in, in the in the labor movement and said how important it is for you to understand the emotions that you're reflecting off to others. If you yeah. understand the emotions of others, in order to know how to lead. And I didn't really appreciate, I haven't really started to appreciate that until recently, but that talk a little bit about that chapter, just highlight it. Cause I think it just, I think it speaks, there's so much about that chapter that can speak towards what real leadership looks like and what a real leader does. Which chapter are you referring to? Uh, not that chapter, but the situation where. Oh, the Shackleton story. Yes. The Shackleton story. That's it. Well, basically it's a great story. It's in, in literature of leadership in universities, et cetera. It's like one of the most important stories. He's considered the icon of great leadership is Shackleton. And basically, he was an explorer, an English explorer, who had crossed, who had explored the South Pole and Antarctica. And he decided to lead an expedition of the first group of men who would cross the entire continent on foot. And he set out with 27 men on a boat called the Endurance in 1914. Everything was planned really well. But then at one point, the ship became trapped in an ice flow, and it couldn't move. 
And because it was stationary, it started taking on water and slowly the ship was sinking. And so he had to have all the sailors abandon the ship, all 27. He took the little lifeboats that were on it onto, the, onto this ice floe. But basically now the ship sunk. He had to forget the expedition. And he was facing almost certain death because here they were trapped on this sort of floating ice floe, which was large, but was getting smaller and smaller. And they were about to head into winter in which there was no daylight. The conditions would be horrible. He had no radios to signal for help. They were running out of supplies. Where were they going to get food? But more important, as somebody who had led expeditions, he knew that the greatest danger was the spirit of the men. As they started feeling negative, as they started bickering, as they started doubting, they would destroy themselves from within. It was an impossible situation to get out of. But this was man was an actual genius when it came to human nature. So he understood that he had to be very rational. He couldn't get emotional. He, was, he had, had to make a series of very important decisions. Number one, when to abandon the ice floe and get on the little ships, little lifeboats they had, to go somewhere else. And who knows where else they would go. He had to know, you know how, to, how to keep the men entertained, how to keep their spirits up. He had to know on and on and on all these series of decisions. And if he was emotional... If he let his emotions get to him, if he started panicking, it would be the end of them. So he understood that and he calmed himself down every day. He learned to sort of step back and, and, and rethink his ideas. He dealt with each individual man on the expedition as an individual. He got inside to the carpenter. He spoke about carpentry, understood his mindset. To the photographer who was on board, who was more of an artist. He knew how to talk to him in a different language. He knew how to, he knew the weaknesses of each person and how to make sure that, that this didn't turn into something else. He knew which group of men to put in which tents that the malcontents wouldn't spread. He was so sensitive to each individual spirit that, you know, he could control them much better in a larger sense. He knew that they had a dark side, that these men had lots of, you know, they were sailors, adventurers, were cooped on, on this little ice floe. They were going to go crazy. So we organized these soccer games on the ice with an improvised soccer ball where they could get competitive and hit each other and get mean and let it all out in a game. And he let them get drunk every couple of weeks and have a festival and be as raunchy as they wanted to, to sort of vent some of these emotions on and on. Which is counterintuitive. A lot of people say you just, a lot of, the leader would say, let's just make sure everybody stays focused and don't, and, and, and actually not allow people to have that venting, which probably would have led to the destruction. It was something that, something awful would have happened. You know, some, it would have come out in some other way. And I also like the one part of the chapter you focused on that talked about what really stuck out to me was when you said you knew there was one person that really affected the mood of the whole group, and he had to isolate that person in certain ways to make sure he didn't infect the whole group, otherwise everyone was brought down. That really spoke to me to think about who's in your organization that you know has that attitude, and how do you work with the problem before it metastasized? I thought that was brilliant. Well, you know, think of it, the key there is you've got 27 men and you have to pay attention to each one of them. If you have an office and you have 27 employees, inevitably there will be one malcontent among them who's going to spread. And it only takes one to really ruin 
the spirit in a group. And you as a leader have to be attentive to each person. You don't know necessarily who that is. People wear masks, they don't show it. And what the brains of Shackleton was, he was paying attention to each one of these men. He would personally talk to them and converse with them and interact with them every day. He didn't neglect anyone. He was getting into their spirit. But that attentiveness to each person allowed him to identify the malcontent and isolate him and not make sure he didn't spread trouble. He didn't physically isolate him. He made sure that he put him, for example, in a tent with other people who weren't potentially other malcontents, who would kind of raise his spirit up, etc. But that attentiveness, that sensitivity to people's individual individuality is what makes a great leader. And the, the proof is in the pudding. He ended up leading them onto those lifeboats to an island 300 miles away. And from there, he, he knew they couldn't stay on that little island because there was no food. He got six men on a tiny little lifeboat and crossed 800 miles of the most treacherous waters on the planet Earth, waves 30 feet high on this little 10-foot lifeboat. Absolutely incredible. And he brought them to this island and rescued all of the men. But how he managed to keep their spirits together and how he managed to, you know, work with their spirit and make sure that they didn't get, that they didn't sort of dissolve from within is one of the greatest stories in in the leadership history of all time. Absolutely. James, I know James, you had a, you had a follow-up question. Well, it actually just touches on, um, the, the, the story you just told, um, but also throughout your books um, and, and human nature is, is no exception to this. Your use of historical examples to provide context and illustration is like captivating. You know, it, it's like it could be I, I could read those all day, you know, and then I get to also read, you know, how you apply it and stuff, which is great. But just the, the historical examples are just amazing. Uh, what inspires you to use such an approach, you know, and, and how are you able to find such just spot on examples in the great expanse of history. Well, it's a lot of work, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of effort and energy. And it's kind of, after six years of doing it, it kind of completely exhausted me. Hmm. But um, I've been doing it since the 48 laws of power. And my intuition when I wrote my first book was, I want to make a book that's entertaining. I just don't want to throw information at people. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of books that bore the hell out of me, and I don't want to be one of those writers mm-hmm. that writes a boring book. And stories, it's, if you tell a story well, it's impossible to bore your audience. You tell it in a way where you kind of lure them in by not telling them where you're headed. There's going to be a surprise, a twist at the end. I'm going to tell you the lesson to be learned, and it's not necessarily what you think. The people you think are the people being conned in the game end up being the con artists. That's from the 48 Laws. So I'm going to surprise you. And by doing that, I lure the reader in slowly into my way of thinking, into my world. And so now you're ready to consume a 600-page book with a lot of information, but it doesn't like weigh you down because I'm trying continually to entertain you and tell you stories. And stories are what keep the mind engaged. And I tell writers a lot of times, that's what you're missing in your book. You're not paying attention to how, what, how the human attention span works. People are tuning in. So many books I read by chapter four, I'm already tuning it out because they just keep repeating the same information. They don't know how to entertain. 
So what I do is, A, I look for stories that have drama to them. And, you know, I, I have a background in, in film and theater, so I kind of have a sense of what's dramatic, of, of where a good story could be, of where there's a human element where everybody can relate to. It's got to be something that everybody can relate to in some way. It could be a story of King Louis the Fourteenth, but on some human level, we can all relate to it. So I find those stories. And then if there's somebody famous, like a Napoleon Bonaparte, or, you know, like, um, um, you know, Mary Shelley, as we talked about earlier, the woman who wrote Frankenstein, I read very long biographies, but I'm looking for little nuggets in those stories, in those books that other people aren't looking at, but I think are extremely telling about that person's character. So I'm going to surprise you. So one of the characters in the laws of human nature that I talk about is Richard Nixon. He's the, he's the exemplary story of the shadow, the dark side of the human personality. And I was reading a very interesting biography of him. And it said that as a little boy, three years old, Nixon cried and cried and cried and cried more than any other baby they had ever seen. The mother didn't know how to make him shut up. And, it, and the father hated him because of it. Even the mother got irritated with him. I think, what does that say about Richard Nixon? What does that say about the man who became our president, who had all of these vulnerabilities, these wounds from his childhood that he had to cover up with this kind of macho front and this kind of paranoia about everybody. It showed that there was this little baby inside of him who had never been loved enough, who had never been held enough. And so I never read that in all my, you know, nobody really had emphasized that. So I looked for nuggets that reveal people's character that nobody's really talking about. Well, mission accomplished for sure. <laughs> yeah, mission accomplished. You did, a great, you did a great job. It works exactly how you intended. <laughs> no, absolutely. So I want to I want to ask kind of a follow-up to that. So you 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 bring up historical examples better than anybody I've ever read, frankly. But what motivated you in particular? What inspired you? And if you could think about <clears throat> a personal story or two about what inspired you to to write the laws of human nature and the 48 laws of power. I've heard you say in, in other interviews that you, you write out of anger sometimes. So that tells me something in Hollywood must have happened at some point <laughs> in your life. <laughs> and to the extent you're comfortable We've read your it. book. We've yes. read your book. We know what that means. <laughs> so I know that, you know, every, every, every story comes from some personal motivation and personal experience, I am sure. So what motivated you in general to write the book? And if you could think about any personal experiences that just, if there's one that one or two that just sparked it, like, my God, people need to know about this and I need to make sure people understand this lesson. Well, um, you know, I had gone into working in Hollywood after, after having many different jobs with a lot of idealism, youthful idealism. This is gonna be a great place for me to express myself. I could be creative, I could be a screenwriter. I come from Los Angeles, et cetera. And slowly I realized that it's not what my ideals were. It was a extremely Machiavellian environment, a very power-laden environment where people didn't so much pretend, but they acted as if all that mattered was creating a great movie. But in truth, it was really about their ego and about having power. And nobody was writing about this. And so, um, you know, I worked for a film director, and he 
he was he was not a bad person. He was a typical Hollywood director. And I saw him do some maneuvers that were actually quite nasty. And looking back, he started out as a writer and he wanted to direct his first film. But the producer didn't think he was experienced enough to direct this film. And so the man I was working for, he came up with this very clever strategy. He pretended to agree with the producer. And he said, all right, let me go find the right director for us, or together we'll find the right director. And he purposefully found someone who he knew could not pull it off. He looked on paper to be potential to be the director, but he knew his character. He knew who he was, and he knew that it wasn't a slam dunk, but that 75% sure this guy would fail because he didn't have the character to take the pressure on. And also, the guy I knew was going to be applying some pressure. So he deliberately hired somebody he knew would fail and would fail probably early on. And it happened. It happened in pre-production before the film ever got off in the casting. And so this guy, producer, had to come in and fire him. And then this guy, the last minute man I worked for, had to come in and rescue and become the director, which had been his goal all along. But in the process... He played it brilliantly, and I had to admire it and clap at how well he played it. But in the process, he kind of destroyed this guy's, this other wow. man's reputation, who I'm not positive about it because I haven't done the research, but I don't think he ever totally recovered. I don't think he directed another film. And then personally, um, for this one director, I would write a lot of his dialogue. He, he, he was a very intuitive man. He wrote everything on these yellow legal pads. And then suddenly he'd get blocked and I would start stream of consciousness. I would take over and I would write whole blocks of dialogue. Pages and pages were my writing. I never got credit. I never got paid. Nobody ever knew about this. And that's law number seven in the 48 Laws of Power. Always let other people do the work, but always take the credit. That had been played on me. You know, but it's a typical thing in Hollywood or in media where people the researchers, the joke writers. You know, Bill Maher doesn't write his own jokes. He has a team of people writing his jokes. You never see that. So I had this kind of sort of, I went in so idealistically, so wanting it to be this creative environment. And instead I saw all these kind of power games being played and nobody talking about it. And it pissed me off. It pissed me off. There was this rampant hypocrisy that people think of all of these <laughs> liberal-minded Hollywood directors and producers. They're always in the best causes. And I saw behind closed doors how mean-spirited, how, how they could be true assholes when the doors closed, how poorly they often treated their employees. And I wanted to expose the kind of power environment that I witnessed. And it isn't just Hollywood. It's the music industry. It's, pol- it's politics. It's academia. It's the medical world. It's every world. But Hollywood was kind of like a microcosm for me. No, that, 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 that's very, very, very interesting. You know, you often say, you know, people, you said this in the book, people bring the character they have to the position they occupy or the religion they practice. A person can be a Christian or a progressive liberal and still be a tyrant at heart. Ooh, 
that one was like, <laughs> I could tell, I could tell that was coming from a place of power and anger and some, and that was just such a powerful line. When I thought about that, I just said, whoa, that is a mind blown type of line. But it's true. I mean, it's true. There, there are, it's not Christianity that's a problem. Christianity is a wonderful religion and there are wonderful people who are Christians, but there are also bad Christians. There are also people who get into that religion and they use it for very dark purposes. We've seen it throughout history. And so it's not the religion itself, but it's what people bring to it. So you could be, you know, a social justice warrior. You could be in favor of the greatest cause for humanity, but personally you're, you're not, you're, you're not like that at all. Yep. And that, that happens over and over again. Because, you know, you, you say, I heard Ta-Nehisi Coates said this, if you've read any of his books, he has a line where he talks about, you know, people that did really bad things, but they held themselves out to be good people in order to do often, in order to do evil, one has convinced themselves they're doing good. So everyone, and you say that in your book, that everyone has the self-opinion that I'm good, I'm rational, I'm autonomous, and we want to all believe that. Right. But the truth is, people that probably have that certainty belief probably aren't any of those things. At least that's what I gather from your book. Well, if you're a true saint, if you're Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa, you don't need to broadcast it. Part of being a saint is you don't have an ego. You don't feel the need to go on social media and proclaim to the world, look at all the great things I'm doing. The best forms of charity, of altruism, is where the other person doesn't even know that you're doing it. You're hiding yourself. They don't feel beholden to you. You're not lording over them your act of charity. So a true saint doesn't need to promote him or herself. And the fact that you have to promote this is a sign of something a little bit dubious. Yes, speaking and going a little bit of, uh, of a different direction, but it's I think it's relevant to what you just said. You know, you you talked this is a while back, and you did an interview in the Guardian speaking about vulture capitalism. This is a, a, you talked about people who sell this dream that's not true, and people I, I honestly look up to leaders like this. They assume that okay, we get there by being mean, being vindictive. You said, but you said this. You know. Uh, the great thing about America is that you can come from the worst of circumstances. Somebody like somebody like uh, 50 Cent, Jay-Z, that's the, their success are the people that we want to celebrate, not the vulture capitalists. Speak more to what you meant by that and how your books may speak to that. What's the word? The, word, the vulture capitalists. Is that the word that I used? You did. I did? Okay. <laughs> and, and we loved it. And we, we loved, loved it. it. Oh, man. We, we loved it. We loved word. it. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible phrasing. <laughs> I, took, I, I, I took out some of the other, it was the reference you were talking about, just so you, I'll give you the full context. I know you've given a lot of interviews, so I'll give you the full quote. Yeah. You, you were talking about Obama and, and, and uh, Mitt Romney and the perspectives of what you had then and why you had those beliefs and w how we should celebrate success in America. So that was what you were talking about. And it was during that, it was, it was in that conversation that you brought that up. So just so you yeah. know the whole context. Well, I don't know if I'm going to completely answer exactly what you want here, but I'm always attracted to, I'm attracted to people's stories of people who kind of came from the worst circumstances and were able to raise themselves up because consider that, you know, we talk about attitude. What happens to you in life is definitely going to affect your attitude. And if from very early on, nothing but negative stuff is being told to you about who you are, about the environment that you live in, you're going to internalize that. And people who overcome that, who've dealt with a lot of crap from very early on, who manage to salvage their soul and part of who they are and sort of their spirit, 
I think that's the greatest success story that I can imagine. Now, you might not think of 50 Cent in those terms, but I know him. I met him. I hung around with him. I met his grandmother. I know his fam, where he grew up. I would spend time. I didn't live there, but I spent time in the streets where he grew up in Southside, Queens. This was an extremely brutal environment. There is no logical reason why someone like that shouldn't be dead by now. In fact, everybody he knew growing up, most of them were either in prison or dead. And, you know, a lot of what he did early on is a bit unsavory. He was selling crack cocaine. Let's not, let's call it what it is. Um, But it was his only way of survival. He came from terrible circumstances. His mother was, she was, she had him when she was like 16. She was murdered when he was eight years old. So he was basically orphaned to his grandparents who had to raise like 18 other kids in a small house. He grew up in, in the crack epidemic. And, you know, everything was against him. Yet he salvaged something about himself. He salvaged a sense of discipline, a sense of belief in himself. He kept his soul together. He credits his mother because he says that his mother was a very aggressive, ambitious woman. She had ambition. She wanted to be something in life. The only, she was a, a drug dealer herself, but she wanted to get the hell out of it. And she wanted to protect him from that. He internalized that and that saved his life. What a remarkable story that he was able, even after he had been shot and nearly died, to pick himself up after, after hardship after hardship, the worst kind of circumstance. I, these, are, these are amazing stories. And in Mastery, I have my favorite story of all of Zora Neale Hurston, who became a great novelist. And actually, she's an amazing novelist. And this woman came from an environment where it was not ever, even remotely possible forever to achieve that. No black woman had ever written a novel that ever made any kind of money that went, you know, that was actually commissioned and paid money to write. And she was a maid working in rich people's houses. She had no money, no education, no chances. And yet with her attitude and her spirit and her discipline and her self-love and awareness, she became an incredibly successful novelist, the first black female writer to ever make any money writing. These are the kind of stories that are very American. You know, we have a lot of stories in the 19th century of people like that. These are what we should be celebrating. The, the Donald Trump juniors of the world, or even Donald Trump himself, who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, or the Bushes. I don't consider that interesting to me at all, because they were given, it's like running a 100-meter race and you get to start at the 50 yards into it, you know, 50 meters into it. Of course you're going to win. Yeah, I mean, my mother always said, you know, you measure a person's success not by not not by how far they've came, but the obstacles and the struggles they have to overcome in order to achieve that success. So, I completely agree. It's something that my mother's really really talked to me a lot about. So, and, and you know, from a person I didn't have, I grew up middle class, but I have a learning disability. And, you know, my teachers told me I would never go to college and almost failed the second and sixth grade. I have two degrees now, long story bearable. But I had a mother that always infected me with the right attitude. She said, look, no one one gets to define you. You define yourself for yourself, by yourself. And so that's, I am fortunate to have that. But others don't have that. Like 50 Cent didn't probably have that chance. And he still, the fact that he got there is amazing. And I think people, it's easy to judge to say he did something wrong or he did things that were uh, criminal. 
But you know what? Lots of people make mistakes. And when you come from difficult circumstances, if you had to come from those circumstances, then you judge there first. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about. May I ask you a question about that real quick, Rob, before you transition? Um, so I know the characteristics that you're saying are, are great about these individuals, but I'd like to know what the consistent the, the number one consistent theme is in these individuals who do persevere to to greatness. Well, they they have a kind of vision of themselves um, I talk a little bit in mastery about a sense of calling, a sense of destiny, where you feel like you were destined for something greater and you were meant to, to accomplish something in life. That is something that's a common theme that I find in these backgrounds. So I know that in Zora Neale Hurston's story, she had this feeling from very early on that she was going to be a successful writer. She had that image in her head when she was a little girl, before she'd experienced any of the really incredible hardships that occurred to her. I know that 50 Cent, at a very early age, had always seen himself as becoming an extremely successful entrepreneur. So it's a degree of self-belief. And so what happens when you have that self-belief is that when you have failure, which is inevitable, when you have hardship, when you have obstacles thrown at you, when people don't believe you, you don't get crushed by it, yeah, you have moments of doubt. Yes, you get maybe angry and frustrated, but you bounce back up because you know deep inside you were meant for something else. There's no way, way I could ever compare myself to those circumstances because I too came from a very a reasonably comfortable middle-class environment, you know, and had good parents. But um, I had a lot of negativity when it came to me becoming a writer. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I was in New York. I was a journalist for a magazine. And I'd written this article that I thought was really good. And the editor had lunch with me. And I, and I thought he was going to compliment me on the article that I wrote. And after he downed his like second martini, he started ripping into me. And he started saying, you know, Robert, you really should start considering going to law school. You're never going to make it as a writer. You're too undisciplined. You're too wild. You, you know, you're, you're all over the place. You're just, you just don't have the head for making it in writing. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that could really crush somebody, that could really make you, you know, he was, he was a successful editor. And what I did was, I've always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted it so badly, and I knew that I had something worthwhile to, to express. But I, my response was, maybe he's not totally uh, wrong. Maybe journalism is the right thing for me. And maybe he's got his finger on it. I'm not going to, I was a little bit angry. I can't deny it, but I'm not going to get bitter about this. All he's telling me is I need to keep writing. I just have to find the right medium. Maybe it's film, maybe it's screenwriting, et cetera. And then I segued into that. But I always had a belief that's, that I was going to be a successful writer. And I had terrible doubts, terrible moments, but that belief as a child that you were destined for something, I think is absolutely critical for overcoming all the crap that the world will inevitably throw at you. So I have a follow-up to that. When you think, because your books, I always think there's, an, there's, a, there's some inherent tension to parts of your books, right? So I have a similar belief that I, I was going to grow up and do, and do great things, and I had, I had that reinforced, and I had to overcome teachers that said I would never go to college. And so I think that served me well. However, I do see you know, that there can be, you can take that too far. And in your book, you talk about grandiosity, right? Yeah. And you get to the point where 
you have this belief and, and, you, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it detaches from reality. So here's the question. How do you figure out how to manage that appropriately so you don't do what you, what you talk about in some of the other in parts of these books where you go overboard and ruin everything you've been working for because you're so because you've now lost reality focusing on how great you you believe that you are does that does my question make sense very much so very much so well um i make the point in i'm thinking like four of my six books that success is very dangerous that success is often your worst enemy because it goes to your head and you believe you have the golden touch and you believe that you were destined for great things and so I know personally that each time I finish a book, I bring myself back down to earth and I tell myself, all right, that book is successful, but my next book is probably going to fail because I don't have the golden touch. I have to work really hard and I have to keep myself from not getting that, from not, you know, reading, believing in my own myth. And I think it's what separates people who have a short career from a long career. So nothing is more narc of a narcotic than mute than the hip hop world when 50 was still starting out when I was getting involved with a lot of hip hop artists. Right. Yet you have people like 50 who came from very poor backgrounds and suddenly they're on top of the world. They've got $10 million. They got all the women fawning all over them <laughs> and they never do another album after that. They're one album wonders because the success was like a drug. It went to their head. And they, they, they lack the discipline. And they're young. And they're young. You know, like dealing with that at 20 or 21 is totally different than dealing with that at 40. Exactly. Well, you're right. You know, if I had my success when I was basically 36, 37. And um, if I had had it when I was 21, I don't know what would happen to me. I probably would have ruined myself. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> I, I feel third. I agree. But yeah, so... Um, you know, when it came to, to someone like 50, um, he was extremely practical and very ambitious. So he wasn't satisfied with just having one, one record. He saw on the streets, his favorite motto was, never get high on your own supply. So <laughs> you know, don't smoke the drugs that you're dealing. Don't, he never touched drugs. He never that, was, touched that was actually Biggie too, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> he got that from Biggie, but go ahead. Oh, he did? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, no. Biggie wrapped it. 50 yeah. lived by it. That's yeah. true. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he, he, he knew the dangers of getting, he saw what drugs did and he saw that success was like a drug and he saw other rappers and he saw what happened to them and he had some good mentors. Um, his name is escaping me from Run DMC. But anyway, he had good mentors and he knew that he didn't want to get caught up in what had destroyed the careers of so many other rappers. So he had a good lesson in front of him. So your self-awareness, your humility, your understanding of human nature will, will, will sustain you and you won't be a one-hit wonder. You, you understand the history and the dangers that success present. And this isn't just for hip-hop artists. I see it all the time with business people that I consult with, C CEOs, who think that they have the golden touch and because they started an, a, an, a, a company that, that is turned into a, you know, a billion dollar business that they know how to do everything. So they call me in to give them advice because they're running into problems 
they won't listen to anything I say, even though they're paying me. <laughs> because they think they know everything. And that's what success will do to you. The Michael Eisner story that you provided in the book was amazing. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was just mind-boggling because, you know, that's stuff we saw from the outside, but to see it on the inside was, it was amazing on this very point. Yeah. We admire the Jay-Z's and, 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 and kind of that first generation, those that, that made it. But I guess the, the human issue and the human nature part is the next two to three generations behind those matriarchs and patriarchs usually end up being the types of personalities that then you, you, you tend to not glorify in your writing. So yeah. I don't know if there's a way for us to get out of that as humans, but it seems like that's the constant, you know, turn that every few generations starts over. Well, there are examples in history of people who do come from wealthy circumstances who end up being incredibly successful. And I often wonder, you know, maybe at some point I would like to study them to see the commonalities there. I know today I was visiting one of my doctors and he was telling me the story that he was treating this guy who was the son of the people who started Baskin Robbins, you know, the ice cream chain. And he, the son, is even more is wealthier than his father. He became a record producer who was extremely successful. And I was thinking, how could somebody who comes with a silver spoon in his mouth and even exceed his father? That's so unusual. What was it about his childhood? I don't know. But I think there is a way to make it so that your children have a sense that, that, that life involves struggle, that, that they have to learn some, some skills, some resources from within that you can't provide them. In other words, you let them fall, you let them fail, you let them have problems, and you let them get out of it themselves, sort of how Phil Jackson would coach when the team was starting to fall apart, he would let them go further with it so they would learn on their own how to, how to coach themselves. So if you're always helicoptering your children and trying to make everything easy for them, they have a new word for it. I think it's called the snow plowing parent, where you're trying to make everything easy and smooth for them. You're setting them up for disaster because life isn't like that. So if you can at least, you're not going to bring them back to your circumstances. But if you can at least let them have some hardships on their own and suffer a little bit so that they have a sense that this is what life is, involves. I know um, a good example of one of these people is Warren Buffett. I don't know what has happened to his children, but he was very, very careful to not spoil them with the billions of dollars that he has and to make sure that they learned early on to get out on their own to make their own money without kind of being mean-spirited about it. I don't have the exact details on it, but I remember reading that in his biography. And I was struck that maybe there is an alternative strategy for people who are successful, who can kind of let their children kind of experience hardships that don't crush them, but that help develop their spirit in some way. I think there's a way to do it. I don't have all the answers. Maybe it's a subject for another book. Yeah, but I that'll be the next book for sure. <laughs> I want to get towards the end because I know we're getting we're getting close here on time. So let me just uh, ask a few other questions. I want to talk about as we talk about you talked about being hyper certain as a leader, but I want to talk about group dynamics because that's something that's very important, and particularly with recent events. Uh, you know it, the uh, documentary 
uh, you know, how they see us. It just, just came out about the Central Five group and the group right. uh, of, of, of teens that were wrongly accused of uh, raping uh, a white woman, five black teens. Right. And, and, and people were hyper convinced that those teenagers that did it, absent, absent actual DNA evidence, and people still to this day are claiming that they believe they could be guilty even with the evidence. So how, my question is, thinking about this in the current context, what can we draw from this as an example to figure out how we don't let the hyper-certainty of the group let it affect our thinking and our own rational sense? Well, people come with their own preconceptions, their own biases. And so when, they read, when you read the news or you see an event, you're going to interpret it through that lens of, of your own ideas and values. And so the, the solution that I have is to realize that it's probably affecting you. Now, you, you know, you, you obviously weren't into that group think about the Central Park Five, and rightly so, and you're more rational than that. But there are probably other things where you do um, reveal a little bit of that tendency, where you're quick to judge something based on your own preconceptions. So you have to have some humility in life. You have to understand that you are a human being. You're not a god. You're not a superhero that you are susceptible to all the flaws in the, the way the human brain is wired that I'm talking about in this book. So it's not always the other people who are stupid. It's not always the other people who are irrational or narcissistic or aggressive. It's inside you as well. And you need to look within and not be so certain about all of your own ideas and opinions. And a point I try and make in the book is the more certain you are about your ideas, the more convinced you are about your own convictions, the more you are certainly being irrational and being governed by your emotions, and the more dangerous it becomes. And you can flip this around. When we look at politicians and leaders who inspire us or who, who influence us, we're often attracted to people who have that kind of hyper-conviction and hyper-certainty, because we believe that if someone is so certain about the truth, it must be real. Why would somebody be so sincere and so full of conviction if they were wrong? Well, people who are so certain and so full of conviction are actually very wrong often. That's exactly what they're covering up. They're covering up their weaknesses. They're covering up the fact that they don't really know with this macho veneer of, I know for the fact what's going on. So we need, as humans, to be very wary of those leaders, of those kind of uh, what's the word? Those kind of, um, oh man, sometimes language. Fades. Well, I know what you mean. The, the type of leaders that try, that try to convince you they're right about everything. But you know what? You talked about, Linda, what, what's the scare? The hard part for me is that sometimes those are the most influential and best leaders sometimes, but they also have a dark side. So you think about Lyndon Johnson. He said, what convinces is conviction. People have to believe that you believe in what you're saying. And of course, he was able to pass the 1965, 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Civil Rights Act. And he also did a lot of bad things because of that. So I guess there's this that goes back to the tension in the book. And, you know, that's just a so how do we how, how do you I guess it's a two part question. That I want to get to a final question. How do you if you're a leader that happens to be that way, I consider myself to be that type of leader. And I know that can be flawed sometimes. How do you manage that? Uh, manage yourself from not going overboard, and then how do you realistically? Because people want to follow confident, charismatic leaders. 
Right. In, in practical terms, how is how does that really work? How can we guard against that? Knowing our human nature is the one to do that, myself included. Like if you have to give me between a person that can speak well and a person that's boring, I'm probably going to go with the good speaker. I like to say I'm going to go with the substantive person, but my instincts tell me I'm probably going to go with the best speaker. How do you guard against that? How do you guard against not falling for the most charismatic leader and not necessarily the most substantive? Well, there's one? nothing wrong with a charismatic leader per se. There have been a lot of great charismatic leaders in the past who have done a lot of good. In The Art of Seduction, I wrote a chapter on charisma. And I talk about um, Malcolm X, and this is a man who had tremendous charisma, um, and he was an incredible preacher. And I, I use him as sort of a way to analyze where charisma comes from and how it works. And it can be a very powerful tool for the positive, for inspiring people to join a very worthwhile cause. But, you know, is, is the charisma... Does it come from some kind of personal darkness? Does it come from some kind of personal issue where you're trying to get the love and support and recognition that you're not getting in your own life? Does it come from some dark desire for power? Or does it actually come from an, a desire to promote some cause and you realize that it's important to have that kind of charismatic appeal? I, I have nothing against appealing to people's emotions. And I have a problem, believe it or not, with a lot of the Democratic candidates now who I think are missing that. I don't think are, are able to inspire people with a sort of a larger vision. I agree. Of where America should be headed. That's what scares me, but go ahead. Sorry. I, I so, yeah, it scares me too. So you're, it's a very good question, and it's a fine line. So, you know, how do you determine... Who is an Adolf Hitler and who is more of like a Malcolm X or Martin Luther King is very difficult. But I think there are ways and things that, first of all, um, you know, how much does it depend on, on creating hatred and feeding and, and, and binding the group to hatred of the enemy? Or is it actually geared towards getting practical results? Are you there just to vent your own frustration and anger? Or are you there to actually change the world? And you can look at this, these leaders and see that. Are they just spouting a lot of words? Or are they actually doing something practical in the world? Are they actually changing something? Is there actually some kind of real goal that they're aiming at? Or is it all just about rousing dark emotions? So I think there are ways in looking at people's rhetoric and looking at their track record to distinguish the charismatics from from the demagogues, that was the word I was looking for earlier. Demagogues, okay, yes, 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 yes. It's thank uh, you. You know, fi I have a final final two questions that I want to just think about your legacy. Uh, first question: If you had a billboard that summarized your beliefs and what you stand what you stand for, what would that billboard say, and why? Wow. Um, well, you know, I've written books. I don't know what the what the actual. I'm, I'm a very long winded person, as you can tell. That's okay. So uh, my billboard would probably be five thousand words. <laughs> no problem, but um, uh, you know, it's it's about. I just want to. I, I'm a very practical person. I don't want to be someone who writes books that just kind of sell and entertain 
and they're kind of out there. I want books that change you. And I could be being grandiose myself, which is very possible. But I want this book to change how you look at the world. That's all I want. I mean, of course, I do want to make money from the book. I can't deny that. But my real goal is to literally get inside you and change how you look at the world. Because changing people's consciousness is what actually changes their actions and what happens. So my goal, and if I've ever had any success, and when people write to me telling me that I changed how they look at the world and how they look at people and themselves, that's to me a sign that I succeeded. And that's my greatest ambition. I don't know how to fit that on a billboard. No, you fit it in. You said you want to change people's perspective so they can change. Change consciousness. Change consciousness. Change the world. That changed the world. That, 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 that was a really good billboard. Okay. Uh, final question. You have a committee of three, living or dead, whoever you want. They get to advise you on all your work, all your life. Who are those people and why? Wow. This is probably the best person we could ask this question I know. to. I know. I can't wait to hear the answer. <laughs> well, um, I probably go first to ancient history. I probably go to Socrates. Um, I don't agree with everything that Socrates promotes, but I admire his methods so much. And his idea was that um, you need to teach people their ignorance. You need to show them that they don't understand anything. He said the origin of all wisdom is to know that you don't know anything. And therefore, you're excited to learn. And you're like a child and you have wonder. And so I would like to have that man in my life engaging me in a dialogue, taking me apart, taking my ideas apart through a dialectical method and showing me that I'm actually not nearly as smart as I am and that I need to rethink a lot of it. He'd be, he'd be top on the list. Um, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to trumpet this, but I've been practicing, I've been meditating for many years and I practice a form of, of Zen Buddhism. And um, it's really grounded me and really helped me because I've had, you know, I had a recent uh, health setback and things. It's been very hard to kind of deal mentally with these things. And so I'm thinking of some of my favorite Zen masters in history. And I'm not talking about Phil Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Japanese Zen masters in history. Like I've written about in Mastery, a guy named Hakui. Um, because I don't have any of these masters in my life. And supposedly a Zen master, it's not so much what they say, it's their energy that you can sense off of them that they have attained enlightenment and that they have ways of communicating that just change you. And I can't, I've been searching for someone like that alive now and I've gone to Zen classes. There's nobody like that I don't think in the world today, like these old masters. So I would choose one of them so that I could get richer in my, in my sort of patience with myself. And then I would probably go to Abraham Lincoln only because he is such a weird person. And I'm a weird person as well. And I don't think people realize how totally strange this man was. He was, he was very much a poet. He wrote poetry as a young man. He was very sensitive and almost morbidly sensitive. He was caught constantly about death. He was this very kind of sensitive young man, but he was also at the same time very aggressive. He liked to box. 
And when he boxed, he liked to beat the hell out of someone. So he had these two sides that he couldn't quite unite in him, this kind of soft, sensitive side, this aggressive side. And I feel, I, I, I relate to that very strongly because I feel like I have that, I'm nowhere near as great as him, but I have that kind of two fighting sides to myself. And he integrated them through his work, through you know, the personality that he created as president, using that sensitive side to be extremely empathetic towards the situation in the United States, towards not exacerbating it, to not making the tensions worse, to minimizing the loss of life, but also to be very strong and firm and to hold true to a course when everybody was doubting him. So that kind of, it's almost like a father figure, that kind of elemental fatherly-like wisdom of a man who's, who's dealing with the worst situation, everybody doubting him, everybody yelling at him, and yet he's able to stay secure in himself and kind of the metaphor was guide the, the ship of the United States to safe waters. It's an amazing story, and I often wish he would be someone I would love to have a conversation with. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Well, that's awesome. And I just want to just tell you thank you for coming. And uh, I know everybody else wants to tell you we're, we're honored to have you on. Uh, we you. feel uh, fortunate to have the opportunity and um, that you'd come to a, to a startup like ours. We, we, we feel very fortunate. And we want to make sure everybody buys, buys several of your books. You, you know, your new book, uh, The Laws of Human Nature, is I actually think all your work is great. I think this is a, this is this is the combination of all of your best work, and it brings it brings everything uh, to light. So I think people should start there. But all your books are great, and the way I te- well, the way I they they did transform me and really helped me see all of the flaws, uh, more of the flaws that I didn't even know I had because I, I I can just speak to so many parts of your book to say that's me, that's me. I've definitely screwed that up. And the duality of our nature too. Exactly. You know, they have. Your, your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. Yep. And, you know, just the, the, the consciousness, the consciousness that you speak about is is powerful. It's powerful. Yeah, we thank you very much for coming on. It's It's been a pleasure for sure. But again, we're so we're thankful to have you on. Hope you come on again. We're going to make sure everybody kn- uh, knows about your books. And we just want to thank you again. We really appreciate it. This has been an honor. Well, thank you all, John. Great questions. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that show. And if you want to get more exclusive content, if you want to be able to ask authors uh, questions in advance. If you want to hear the things that I talk about, make sure you sign up for Woke Wednesdays. We're going to talk about the most woke things that are going on this week. You're going to get articles that we're going to summarize for you. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to learn about quotations or quotes that I'm contemplating. You're going to learn about all the little things and research that's going on in terms of wokeness because you know, you, if you want to stay free, you got to stay woke. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom and we want to make sure you have all the information. So to do that, you need to sign up for our email list. Go on disruptionnow.com. You can get a, you can get to Woke Wednesdays, and we'll make sure you get that content. Again, disruptionnow.com. Look forward to seeing you next time.